0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganeri and Peter Adamson. Brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, When in Doubt, the Rise of Skepticism. Last time we began our look at the Age of the Sutra by talking about a fundamental clash within Indian philosophy. Where some scholars have spoken of orthodox and heterodox movements, we suggested a less tendentious fundamental contrast. On the one hand, there were systematic works of inquiry produced in the style of aphorisms with commentary, sutra, and bhashya. On the other hand, there were traditions that challenged the very terms of those systems. The clash had political consequences, as we can see from stories about persecution of Buddhists by rulers who sought to uphold the Brahminical teachings. To hear more about this, we strongly recommend that you check out Kit Patrick's History of India podcast, which is covering this same period of history by looking at the legends and a wide range of historical sources. For us, of course, the clash is more significant for its philosophical implications. The rift can, in general terms, be viewed as a contrast between realist movements and skeptical ones. Buddhist and Jaina thinkers raised objections against the core philosophical notions of other schools on topics like language, the mind and the self, practical action, and the efficacy of ritual. They also expressed doubts when it came to the very possibility of systematic inquiry. This challenge was often on the mind of commentators who expounded the meaning of the sutras. It's clear that the sutras do indeed presuppose the possibility of knowledge, and promise that it can be achieved through philosophical inquiry. To see this, you only have to read as far as the first sentence of each sutra. We saw last time that the Mimamsa Sutra and the Brahma Sutra, respectively the founding documents of the Mimamsa and Vedanta schools, are complementary texts. The former aims at the duties of Vedic ritual, the other at knowledge of the unifying cosmic principle of Brahman, already found in the Upanishads. Given their shared genesis, it's no surprise that they have almost identical beginnings. The first sentence of the Mimamsa Sutra is, now then, an inquiry into Dharma. And the first sentence of the Brahma Sutra is, now then, an inquiry into Brahman. Undergraduates, take note. When you're writing philosophy essays, follow the example of these sutras and just cut to the chase. Something similar goes for the Vaisheshika Sutra and the Yoga Sutra. They do not begin with promises of inquiry, but by launching what they term an explanation or exposition. Thus, the Yoga Sutra begins with another admirably straightforward line, now an exposition of yoga. As in a well-run modern-day yoga class, you know where you stand. You're about to hear what yoga, meaning psychophysical discipline, means and involves. Apparently, the lost founding text of the naturalist Charvaka school began with even greater confidence, starting with the line, now then, we will explain reality. Of course, if a skeptic were to convince us that inquiry and philosophical explanation were in fact impossible, we could save ourselves a lot of time and stop reading all these sutras right there. Knowing this, and knowing that the best defense is a good offense, early commentators openly raise worries about the very possibility of inquiry. Expounding the Mimamsa Sutra, Shabara says, on behalf of a hypothetical critic, that it must either be commonly known what dharma is, or else not commonly known. If it is commonly known, then there will be no inquiry. If, however, it is not commonly known, then all the more so, so this work of inquiry into duty is quite pointless. The word for inquiry is jijnyasa, which literally means desire to know. Shavara's point, then, is that a desire to obtain something, in this case dharma or duty, presupposes that one knows what one wants to obtain, to desire knowledge of something, then, means you must already know it, a paradox. The same point is made by a later Mimamsa writer, Kumarela Bhatta. He writes, It is possible to know that which is commonly known, but being commonly known, there is no desire to know it. On the other hand, that which is not commonly known, being impossible to know, is all the more not a possible object of a desire to know. In another sign of the relation between the Mimamsa and Vedanta schools, commentators on the Brahma Sutra expressed the same worry. We find it in the 8th century thinker Shankara. Since the Brahma Sutra begins with that promise to inquire into Brahman, Shankara begins his commentary by raising the same skeptical challenge, if we don't know what Brahman is, how can we go in search of it, but if we do, then there is nothing to discover. Curiously, the realist thinkers, who were most interested in epistemology, were also the ones who failed to confront this problem directly. These were the Niyaya, who, early on at least, seem simply to take for granted that there is a way to investigate, to inquire, to achieve knowledge. They are keenly interested in establishing a method by which to answer the sort of questions you probably ask yourself all the time, like, is yonder entity a man or a tree stump, they are less interested in the still more abstract question, whether there could even be such a method. For the niyaya, then, doubt is not a state of epistemological paralysis. It is a state in which one already has partially grasped an object so that it can be the target for further questioning. The puzzle of inquiry does not even arise but if you're a faithful listener to the History of Philosophy podcast, you'll probably remember someone else who did raise the puzzle that Shabara, Kumarira, Bhatta, and Shankara all worried about, Plato. In his dialogue, The Mino, he has Socrates confront an identical puzzle, to the effect that one would need to have knowledge of something in order to inquire into it. Plato has Socrates suggest a fairly radical solution to this puzzle, namely that we all already know everything that it is possible for us to know, having learned these things before we were born. We have merely forgotten these things and need to be reminded. But this isn't the only or even most obvious way to resolve the paradox. It does seem fruitless to inquire into something about which one already has perfect knowledge. Likewise, if one hasn't the foggiest notion or clue about something, inquiry into that thing is impossible. How would you get started or even formulate a plan to inquire into it? The natural thought is that our situation must at the outset lie somewhere in the middle ground. Inquiry begins not from a cognitive blank state or from complete mastery, but from partial understanding or uncertain belief this, in fact, is exactly what Shabara says in his response to the skeptical challenge. He assumes that the inquiry into dharma arises because we in fact have too many beliefs about it. There is conflict between different conceptions of duty, the sort of conflict we saw being depicted in the Mahabharata. It is in order to decide between these rival beliefs that we launch our investigation. This does seem a good explanation of how we avoid starting from scratch in moral philosophy, but it doesn't give us any reason to think that two people who disagree about Dharma, or for that matter Brahman, are really disagreeing about the same thing. Can the clash between a Vedanta philosopher and a Buddhist critic really be resolved on the basis of commonly held assumptions, or are they just talking past one another using the same words in very different ways? Shankara's commentary on the Brahma Sutra anticipates and answers this further worry. He admits that people disagree about the qualities of Brahman, but insists that we all have a common idea of it, which gives us only partial knowledge. As proof, Shankara offers an etymology of the word Brahman itself. Its very nature is said to consist in what is eternal, pure, and consciousness, bound up with the omniscient and the omnipotent. For the meanings such as being eternal and being pure are derived from semantic analysis of the word brahman, these meanings following from the verbal root. Here we have another reminder of the importance of Sanskrit grammar for philosophers. It was commonly held that linguistic analysis, called vyutpati or nirvachana, can explain why we use certain words for certain things. On the basis of its verbal root, the word dharma was claimed to mean that which upholds. Likewise here, Shankara conjectures that the term brahman is derived from the verbal root that means to grow. This shows that brahman is in some way maximally great. It is, so to speak, all grown up. This might seem a rather flimsy response to the skeptic, but Shankara has a second and more formidable move he can make, one that will again remind us of European philosophy. He argues that the paradox of inquiry poses no threat to an investigation about Brahman, because this is a case where we have direct knowledge. As he says, everyone knows of the existence of his own self and does not think I am not. If the existence of one's own self were not perfectly well known, any one of us could think I am not the parallel with European thinkers like Augustine and Descartes is almost too obvious to need emphasizing. But unlike Descartes with his famous, I think therefore I am, Shankara does not use immediate knowledge of one's own existence to refute global skepticism. He just wants to show that the inquiry into Brahman promised at the beginning of the sutra is indeed possible. He alludes to the Upanishadic statement, you are that, which he interprets as meaning This self is Brahman. Since it cannot be doubted that there is a self, and since the self is Brahman, neither can there be doubt concerning Brahman. There is, in other words, something for us to investigate in the Brahma Sutra. But if he is to avoid the paradox of inquiry, Shankara must show that inquiry is not just possible, but needed. If we have immediate knowledge of the self, or Brahman, what would be the point of inquiry? But there's no danger of that. Our intimate awareness of Brahman does not include an understanding of its true nature. As Shankara observes, there are intense disagreements about the self, with the materialists and common folk assuming that the self is a body, the Buddhists thinking it is just the flow of our cognitions, the Niya thinking it is an agent and subject of experience distinct from the body, the Samkhya agreeing that it differs from the body but denying that it is an agent, and so on. These are disputes we'll get into in further episodes. For now, our point, and Shankara's point, is that there is indeed plenty of dispute on this topic, and hence, plenty of reason to engage in the philosophical investigation undertaken in the sutra. So far, we've been looking at hypothetical, skeptical challenges raised and answered by non-skeptical authors, but such objections weren't merely hypothetical. The history of skepticism in India is at least as old, if not older, than the history of philosophy in India. The hymn of creation, included in the ancient Rigveda, includes the verses, Who knows for certain, who shall here declare it? Whence was it born, and whence came this creation? The gods were born after this creation? Then who can know from whence it has arisen? None knoweth whence creation has arisen, and whether he has or has not produced it. He who surveys it in the highest heaven, he only knows, or perhaps he does not. Here, the Rigveda suggests that the secrets of creation may elude even the gods. Obviously, mere humans aren't going to do better. There are skeptical thoughts, too, in some of the Upanishads, which occasionally propose the idea that mystical insight is the only way to overcome the limitations on human knowledge. Thus, we read in the Kena Upanishad, If you think I know it well, perhaps you do know ever so little the visible appearance of Brahman. There is that part of it you know, and there is that part which is among the gods. And so I think what you must do is to reflect on it, on that unknown part of it. I do not think that I know it well, but I know not that I do not know. Who of us knows that he does know that, but he knows not that he does not know. But the skeptical challenges that really worried the Mimamsa and Vedanta thinkers were not the ones they found in their own sacred texts. From the moment they arose, the dissident Shramana movements were using philosophical arguments to undermine the claims of Vedic authority. Even the authors of epic literature were unsettled enough to respond. So, in the Mahabharata, the god Indra ruefully remarks, I used to be scholarly, a reasoner, a scorner of the Veda, I was pointlessly fond of critical inquiry and the science of argument. I used to make declarations on the basis of logic, in assemblies, speaking with reasons. I harangued the Brahmins and was rude during the Vedic recitations. I was an unbeliever, skeptical about everything, and, though stupid, I thought myself wise. Though the Buddhists are frequently going to adopt the skeptic's role in coming centuries, the Buddhist canon also contains passages condemning skeptical thinkers, The Buddhist Nikaya mentions such a skeptic named Sanjaya, and has this to say about him, By reason of his dullness and stupidity, when questioned on this or that matter, he resorts to verbal jugglery or ill wriggling saying, If you ask me whether there is a next world, then if it were to occur to me that there is a next world, I would pronounce that there is a next world. Yet I do not say so, I do not say thus, I do not say otherwise, I do not say no, I deny the denials. Skepticism doesn't get much more slippery than this. Unlike Nancy Reagan, Sanjaya's policy wasn't just say no, but to disavow even such naysaying. Together with the development of systematic philosophy in the age of the sutra, we see the rise of rival forms of skepticism. Three great critical thinkers of this and later periods are Nagarjuna, who lived in the 2nd century AD, the 9th century thinker Jayarashi, and in the 12th century Harsha. Of these three, only Jayarashi can be called a skeptic in the sense of completely withholding all belief. For Nagarjuna was a Buddhist, indeed the founder of a branch of Buddhism known as Madhyamaka, while Srihasa seems to have had underlying metaphysical commitments too. But all three use skeptical arguments against an idea cherished by other thinkers of their times that we can not only know things, but also know that we know those things. It may seem simply obvious that knowledge is reflective in this way. If I know there is a giraffe in the room, then I must also know that I know there is a giraffe in the room. But as our three skeptics pointed out, it is far from obvious. Suppose I ask you how you know there is a giraffe in the room. You might say, well, I haven't gone into the room myself, but I have it on good authority that there is a giraffe in there. I was told by my friend who is a zookeeper, and he ought to know but if pressed, you would probably admit that testimony is sometimes misleading or outright fallacious. So even while still believing that there is a giraffe in there, you might now be willing to concede that you aren't actually sure that you know there is a giraffe in there. But let's say you go in and look for yourself. Now you've directly witnessed the giraffe, and the only remaining puzzle is how they got it in through the front door. But not so fast. I might ask you how you know that your sense experience of the giraffe gives you knowledge. If you were an Indian philosopher, you might patiently explain to me that eyesight, and sense experience in general, is what you and other such philosophers call a pramana, in other words, a way of knowing. Sense experience is one pramana, but there are others, like inferences based on evidence, and perhaps in the right circumstances even testimony. Your view on which things count as pramanas will depend on which school you follow, but to make a long story short, there are some ways of knowing, and you are using one of them to know that there's a giraffe in the room. And here we come to the elephant in the room, the viability of this whole idea of a pramana. The skeptic will ask how any supposed pramana can be trusted if we do not first establish that the pramana is truly reliable. As Nagarjuna puts it, if just such objects are established for you by way of a means of knowing, tell me how you establish those means of knowing themselves. If the means of knowing are established through other means of knowing, then there is an infinite regress. In our example, you need to justify and confirm your conviction that sense experience can give you knowledge just as much as you need to justify your conviction about the giraffe in the room. You might say, Well, I'm looking at a giraffe, and my eyes work. I'm not dreaming or hallucinating, and so on. That's good enough for me. Maybe, but it won't be good enough for Nagarjuna. He'll point out that you don't know your eyes are working, you don't know that you aren't hallucinating, and so on. How could you? Obviously, sense perception cannot ratify its own trustworthiness. Perhaps you are instead making an inference of some kind. When you trusted your eyes in the past, things went well, so you know they are dependable. You are thus appealing to another pramana, the pramana of inference. But the skeptical reply is obvious and Nagarjuna doesn't hesitate to give it. How can you know that this inference is reliable any more than you know that your eyes are working? You can already see why skeptics in India were regarded as very irritating people. And it gets worse. Jayarashi, has a further way to attack realist epistemologists. He challenges them to define knowledge itself and argues that it cannot be done. He reasons as follows. The establishment of the means of knowing depends on their true definition, and the establishment of things known depends on means of knowing. When the one is absent, how could one talk about the other two as real? If one talks about these things, one could as well start talking about the existence of color in the soul and of pleasure in a pot. Here, the point isn't exactly that you cannot know that you are knowing, it is the even more fundamental worry that you cannot even know what knowledge is. Before you can take yourself to know anything, you must first define knowledge, but how can you be satisfied that any definition constitutes knowledge if you don't already know what knowledge is? Like Nagarjuna, Jayarashi is directing his fire at a rather abstract, highly philosophical target. He is attacking epistemologists not the person with pressing practical concerns, like whether she needs to clear her front room of giraffes. Jayarashi is happy to admit, in fact, that normal people have an ordinary kind of knowledge that makes their lives possible. As he puts it, those who know the truth say the worldly path should be followed with respect to everyday practice, the wise resembles the fool. A few more centuries down the line, we come to our third skeptic, Sri Harsha. He's responding to a new proposal about how knowledge is acquired, which came from the 11th century Vaisheshika thinker Udayana. Udayana's suggestion was that knowledge could be reached through what philosophers nowadays call counterfactual reasoning. Suppose I am in doubt whether there is a giraffe in the next room. I might reason as follows. If there were a giraffe in there, I would smell it. Yet no unmistakable fragrance of giraffe hangs in the air, I conclude that the room is giraffe free. This sort of inference looks eminently reasonable, indeed, it looks to be a big part of what reasoning is, but Sri Harsha is, as you might guess by now, skeptical. He points out that counterfactual inferences themselves stand in need of justification. In our example, I am only able to rule out the presence of the giraffe in the next room by invoking the rule: if there were a giraffe there, I would smell it. But what makes me so certain about that? Again, the threat of a regress looms as every inference I make seems to call for some further inference to ground it, a new inference that will be no more secure than the first. It's a familiar fact that these sorts of paralyzing skeptical challenges are, in real life, not paralyzing at all. We just saw that Jayarashi believed his skeptical arguments would leave ordinary, everyday knowledge standing. In the European tradition, too, skeptics have cheerfully gotten on with their business, acting for all the world as if they have the sorts of beliefs their arguments seem to undermine. This was true of ancient skeptics like Sextus Empiricus, and David Hume famously jettisoned his skeptical worries when he left his study. But ancient Indian thinkers of the Shramana traditions did pose other skeptical challenges, which had more practical implications they questioned the efficacy of Vedic ritual and the reality of the supernatural entities such rituals seemed to presuppose. This was no abstract musing on the possibility of knowledge in general, but a gauntlet thrown down against the elite of the Brahminical tradition. Thinkers of the Mimamsa and Nyaya schools rose to the challenge. The thinkers of Mimamsa, especially, insisted that the Vedas are an indispensable source of vital truths that could be attained in no other way. So, Sacrifice a bit more of your time to join us for the next episode as we look at these debates over ritual and the supernatural here on The History of Philosophy in India.